This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My guest on this edition of The Literary Life is Tanana Reeve Du, novelist, screenwriter, University professor, Tanana Reeve is a pioneer when it comes to horror. Her course at UCLA, The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic, is one of the most popular ones offered. Her novel, The Between, is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And the new novel, The Reformatory, will be released in 2022. Her latest project, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, has just premiered on Shudder and AMC+. But most notably, I've known and admired Tanana Reeve since she was a 15-year-old student in the 10th grade English class I was teaching so many years ago. Tanana Reeve Du, welcome to The Literary Life. Excited to be here. It's great to have you, Tanana. And I have a very, very important, very first question for you. Okay. Who was your favorite 10th grade honors English teacher? Hmm, let me think. Mitchell Kaplan. Ding, ding, ding. You, right? You got it. You got it. You win the prize. 15 years old, people. I meet this man. You were what, like 26? I think you were like 26. Tanana Reeve was my student. And <laughs> she um through the years she knew me before i had a bookshop and one of my great great joys was being able to present to nana reeve in what had to have been one of your very first readings i guess right for the between that her very books. first novel it might have been my first reading yeah and that novel right now we are celebrating what anniversary 20 uh, it was published in 1995 don't ask me to do math but it's been a long time not quite 30 years <laughs> you know it's about 25 years old yeah it's up there and i have to say tanana to watch your career develop after over all these years has been just you know one of the really thrilling things that i got to to, to be involved in your life as both a teacher and a bookseller so it's, it's amazing. It's more surreal than anybody even realizes. I mean, uh, first of all, I remember you reading a handwritten manuscript that I turned into you uh, saying, Mr. Kaplan, what do you think? Handwritten, 200 pages. Can I, I just list a couple of my peak memories? Uh, when John Lennon was murdered, you played Imagine in the class. Class. Now, as a bunch of 15-year-olds, we didn't quite connect with the same level and depth of grief. You know, we weren't as familiar with the Beatles, but you really helped us feel your pain. Uh, I remember listening to Richard Pryor records with you at lunch hour. <laughs> and one day, and this is what a cool teacher Mitchell was. Uh, one day we walk in and it was Honors English. He draws a picture on the chalkboard. I can almost see it like a almost like a stick figures drawing of a tree and a branch and a circle, just kind of almost like a Rorschach and said, okay, now write what you see. And uh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite teacher. I have been a student of yours since then. And it's just wonderful to have you here. And it's wonderful that we are also celebrating what will be premiering tomorrow, which is horror noir, right? Yeah. So Shutter. Why don't you tell us what that is? Well, I was really fortunate uh, a couple years ago, probably almost four years ago now, to be approached by uh, the producers who had 
they had just placed a documentary called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror at Shudder, which was Shudder's, and that's the streaming horror network for people who aren't familiar. Um, it was Shudder's first documentary, their first original documentary. And I was approached by Phil Nobel Jr., who is uh, the editor of Fangoria. Ashley Blackwell had been in a part of the pitching. Um, Kelly Ryan was the producer. And they came to me, ironically, I don't think because I was an author of Black Horror, but because I was teaching Black Horror at UCLA. I, was, I teach a class called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. So I always make the joke that I got famous as a teacher. <laughs> you know, more so than as an author. I mean, it really never even came up in the interviews. They didn't even ask me to mention anything I'd written. I've written several Black horror novels. Most of it was sort of, sort of commentary on cinematic horror and the unfortunate tropes. And now, to answer your most recent question, there's a follow-up coming out October 28th on Shudder and AMC+, Plus, also called Horror Noir, but without the subtitle, it's not a documentary. It is scripted, scripted narrative horror, six stories. My collaborator and husband, Stephen Barnes, and I wrote two of them. And four other writers also wrote stories. So I'm really, really excited about horror noir as a group effort. I mean, sure, it would be amazing if we just had a solo movie coming out. But the idea that there are so many different voices that there are adaptations, which is one of the places where Black horror really lags in Hollywood. We have not, I mean, even Octavia Butler has not yet appeared on the screen. A lot of her work is in development, but we've, I mean, in all these years, no Octavia Butler, so what chance do the rest of us have, right? So it's really, really exciting. This is my first adaptation uh, for a short story called The Lake uh, that I didn't produce myself, you know, as a, like a crowdfunded short film and Fugue State. The second piece we wrote is also an adaptation. And one of the other participants is Victor Laval, who also wrote a script called Daddy, very well-known writer, Ballad of Black Tom, uh, just, so it's, it's a really, really exciting evolution to me of the documentary, which was pointing out all of the really terrible tropes, like sacrificial Negro, the magical Negro, first to die, all these tropes that, that we put up with because we love horror, but did not express black life, uh, black agency, the characters were not driving the story, uh, except with some few exceptions, you know, like Rusty Cundiff in the 90s with Tales from the Hood and Eve's Bayou by Casey Lemons in the 90s. But so much of that had left us behind. And now we get a chance to sort of shape our own stories and just show the world that Black horror is many things, not just one thing. Your road to teaching and your road to writing novels and your road to horror uh, was a windy one. It started in newspapers, right? Started. <laughs> with journalism. Talk I, a little bit about that. Well, ironically, um, you know, and my parents were always very supportive of me being a writer. Oh, we'll talk about your parents in a second. Absolutely, we're very supportive. They were unbelievably, you know, remarkable people. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole separate topic. But I, you know, I often say if they had not been supportive, I might not be a writer today, because that's how much they're their um, support meant to me. But despite that, you know, they were always like, but you need a job, you need uh, an income you can rely on. And it's kind of ironic now to talk about journalism as that stable field. <laughs> but I, I decided, okay, well, I'll be a journalism major. I went to Northwestern University, had a journalism major, but I fulfilled all the requirements of a creative writing major, which meant those English courses, those workshop courses. And my whole job, my whole idea was I would write at the newspaper by day where I was at the Miami Herald, started as an intern at 15 after the McDuffie uh, riots in 1980. Uh, the Miami Herald started a minority internship program. I was a part of it. I mean, Aminda Marquez Gonzalez, who was the actual editor of the Miami Herald, uh, started in that program as a teen. So it really bore fruit. And many of my colleagues, you know, stayed much longer than I did. But I was only there for 10 years, because I always had this master plan that I wanted to, to write, you know, and, and to write novels and to make a living as a, as a writer. And as a 
college intern there, I had an encounter with one of the business writers when I was all bubbly, like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to write in my spare time. And he got this wistful look across his face and said, oh, I used to want to be a writer. And it just chilled me to the core. I had never met anyone who used to want to be a writer. It had never dawned on me that that was something that could go away or that would go unaddressed. And while at this time, I guess, to be honest, I didn't really appreciate the comment at the time because it felt like he was sort of throwing uh, water on my fire a little bit. I have come to see it as a good thing because it really just reinforced to me that I would have to fight for that dream. It was not going to be something that would just land on me. And it was a fight. Being a journalist is very, not just time consuming, but almost soul consuming. You'd like your you get involved with people's lives no matter what you're writing. And I went to features as fast as I could, dating column, as a matter of fact, because <laughs> I was single at the time. And, um, but even so, it, it was tough. It was tough to find the time, especially when you're writing all day, to then go home and write at night. But I would remember that idea that you could let go of that dream. And it chilled me so much that it really did help spur me on. Really one of my earliest memories uh, is taking some typing paper, you know, folding it in half and making a little picture book that I drew illustrations for and captions. And I called it Baby Bobby, you know, and I still must have a copy of it somewhere. And my mother made copies and gave it to the members of our Unitarian Church. Um, but it was the thing that's most impressive to me about looking back on Baby Bobby is not that I did it, but the, on the back page, I wrote like a liner note. <laughs> I wrote, Baby Bobby is a book about a baby. The author is Tanana Du. And I spelled a lot of these words wrong. But the point was, I guess I was familiar enough with books that I knew how the, the, how the mechanism worked. You had the book and then you had something about the book. But just defining myself as an author at the age of four just feels pretty extraordinary to me looking back on it. You know, I just... I feel like I was born knowing I wanted to be a writer. And although I like music, I have a piano behind me and I still pay, play, not as much as I should. And I, I love comedy. You know, I did a, an open mic night once in my 20s. There were a lot of things sort of competing with that idea of being a writer. But by the time I got to high school, Mitchell, I had let go of band. I had let go of piano lessons. Anything that was not about writing and being a writer, I let go and completely focused on that with the Honors English. I was taking English classes at Miami-Dade Community College as a high school student, creative writing. I just really, really knew, and that focus was a big advantage. And, and you grew up in a house of books, obviously. I and did. So, so talk a little bit about, you know, your parents, Patricia Stevens Do and John Do. Talk about them. I was really fortunate to be born into the household I was. I have two sisters, Janita and Lydia. Um, Lydia is visiting me now. And they were civil rights activists. They met, if you could call it courting, they courted while they were students at Florida A&M University in the 1960s. My father is a law student. And my mother, as one of the organizers of the CORE chapter, the Congress of Racial Equality, which, which practiced nonviolent direct action. And my mom was a normal college student for two years. She and my sister, her sister, my aunt Priscilla Krause. But when they learned about CORE and when they went to a workshop and saw how it, like there was a, a playbook and a handbook and there were rules and procedures and they just lit up. It's like, oh, and when Greensboro popped off, the uh, Greensboro sit-in, they realized, let's do it. We're going to do a sit-in in Tallahassee, Florida. And that started my mother's um, civil rights career which was many arrests through the 1960s. Uh, as a 20-year-old student leading a nonviolent march to try to get sit-in students out of jail, a police officer recognized her as one of the leaders, said, I want you, and threw a tear gas canister in her face, mm. which uh, from that point, she wore dark glasses. Like if you see pictures of my mother, there's even a pair of her dark glasses, I believe, in the Florida archives because she wore dark glasses 80% of the time, even indoors, 
for the rest of her life as a result of sensitivity to light from that tear gassing. Mm -hmm. And so she had that scar. She unfortunately passed away, you know, in 2012, I think far too soon. But my father, John Dew, who was a civil rights attorney, he now calls himself a freedom lawyer. Mm. He doesn't like the word attorney <laughs> anymore for whatever reason. So freedom lawyer. But uh Mom was like on the front lines getting arrested. Dad was behind the scenes uh, filing reports, uh, working in Florida, working in Mississippi, helping to pioneer a tactic, which now I can't remember the legal name for it, but a tactic that the states use to move these civil rights arrest cases from state to federal court so that they could get more favorable rulings from federal uh, judges as opposed to state judges. And he helped pioneer that tactic. And trust me, is glued to CNN even today and, and always scribbling notes about how to solve the race problem. So I grew up, yes, in a house full of books. Uh, we were practically homeschooled in Black history to sort of supplement what we weren't learning in public schools, whether it was comic books. Um, my mother was the one who had me read the diary of Anne Frank, as far as I can remember. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had sort of a home education in addition to our public school education. But despite all that, Mitchell, despite all that I just said, being the daughter of these civil rights activists, having all of this immersion in history and literature and culture, by the time, even when that story I gave to you, I wanna bet money, those protagonists were white. I wanna bet mm -hmm. me, I started, now baby Bobby didn't really have a race, he was a stick figure, but as a 10 year old, I was writing about little black girls mm -hmm. and their adventures, you know, stowing away on a spaceship or whatever, like trying to get in the book of world records. But certainly by the time I had finished graduate school, I went to the university of Leeds in England and got a master's in English as a rotary scholar, which was great because they pay for everything. All that exposure to Canon <laughs> and all my reading, I had written myself out of my fiction, both as a black woman, like a black person, and as a woman, I was writing epiphany stories about white men, right? Like the, the biggest major project I was working on before the between uh, was, uh, and I remember this one, it was, I wrote it, I started it in grad school called Separate and Related. And it was about a young white gay playwright in New York who gets leukemia and has to move in with his brother and they repair their fractured relationship. Mm. Now that sounds great, except for a few problems. <laughs> okay, I wasn't, I had never lived in New York. So <laughs> I don't know where I was getting the setting from. I wasn't a gay white male. I wasn't a playwright. I didn't have a brother even. I mean, there was nothing of me. I never felt like an outsider uh, consciously because of race, but I was trying to write like the stories we were reading and if I wrote black characters, it almost felt like there needed to be a reason they were black. So then I was writing about like inner city kids, which also was not my experience. I, I did discover African literature when I was in graduate school, which is kind of ironic. You know, I went, but of course the UK has a different investment in African history and culture because of colonization, you know, and, and that's why their news was filled with stories from all over the world in, in, in the United States quite conspicuously. Our news is usually not from all over the world, except for a couple of other countries that we check in with from time to time. So I know there are two experiences that we've talked about mm -hmm. that have led you down this road. And I want you to talk about them. One had to do with your mother and her own love for horror, right? right. Your, your mother was a reader, you know, extraordinaire, and she read horror stuff. And I know that she particularly liked the work of Stephen King and, she, and gave yeah. you that. She gave me um, a copy of The Shining when I was 16 years old and it was life-changing uh, because, well, Stephen King, it was very, very scary. It spoke to me on so many levels, but his characterization was so rich that I think even long before I, I gave myself permission to look at the part of me that wanted to write genre, I could see such a strong appeal in his work. And then aside from that, mostly my mother's affinity for horror was cinematic, I would have to say. She loved those old universal horror movies and, and we'd watch the creature features on channel six uh, back in the WPIX, I think it was back in the day. Um, and I learned 
how to love feeling scared in a safe context, which as I look at it now, it's a very different experience for my mother after everything she had been through to watch horror. And for me, a kid to watch horror, because I hadn't lost anything. I hadn't suffered anything. I, you know, even my great grandparents were alive at that point, some of them. So I was watching horror like a roller coaster ride. Wee! I think she was watching horror as uh, a bomb of, of a sort because working with horror noir, having talked to other, especially black people who learned to love horror from their mothers and their grandmothers and their grandfathers. I think that marginalized communities and people who have been traumatized are especially drawn to the horror genre because it fits the wound just right. It's, mm. it's like, oh, okay, I remember this feeling. I know this feeling. This isn't exactly what happened to me, but this is a visual validation of an experience I've had. And very often you get to watch these characters kill the monster, outsmart the monster, or escape mm -hmm. the monster. And even if they don't, you can just turn it off, right? You turn it off and you're like, well, at least whatever I'm going through isn't as bad as that demon or as bad as the zombies breaking in my house. And there's something I think very healing. Often people say, why do you like that stuff? It, it We're already scared, right? So it's not that we're looking uh, to be scared. We're already scared. We're looking for an outlet for that fear we're looking and and frankly in terms of the literature and writing horror i'm really really drawn to creating characters who who don't know anything about the uncanny they're just going about their lives the best they can they have an encounter with the uncanny that is something that puts their lives at risk or their families at risk and they have to figure out what to do and stand up to it Right, and, and I think I've always admired that quality in better horror characters, not the ones that fall and trip. Those are not useful. Well, everyone's useful. You know, they can teach you what not to do in a crisis, but, but it's the characters in literature in particular who are more nuanced and more developed, who, who have to draw upon inner strengths, learn family secrets they didn't know, learn uh, the history of a place they didn't know, learn a mythology they didn't know and either gather allies or just do it themselves to stand up to this thing, right? And I didn't even know what I was preparing for because I had such a pampered life, Mitchell. I mean, yeah, we had the issues with integration that families had moving into an all white neighborhood. And there were, you know, my dad got a call from the FBI when I was uh, younger warning him about uh, a bomber who was targeting federal judges and be careful because he might be. So there was this sense of danger kind of floating around us, but I, I've never been physically attacked. I've never had uh, a boss who was mean to me. You know what I mean? I've had this incredibly pampered life in many ways. And I didn't even know what I was preparing for until my mother uh, got sick. And, and eventually passed away uh, from a brain tumor, that was my trauma. Like the trauma she suffered when she was 20 years old, when, when police were trying to harm her and, and she was facing seemingly insurmountable odds to go from the segregated era of Jim Crow to what happened so quickly after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, I felt like they literally changed the world. Although now we're learning that a lot of it just went underground. You know, it just the signs went down, but the sentiment didn't disappear. Um, a lot of people still consider that the vote should be whites only, right? That's that's what was at the root of the insurrection. Well, they're they're trying to act on that, right? Yeah, now. absolutely. So it didn't go away. But for me as a kid, I felt like they had just turned the page and changed the world, and she had already faced all these demons and monsters. And then her death was my demon. Her death was my monster. And that's when I started to kind of figure out what horror had meant to her was ironically and losing her. So we never had a chance to really talk about what horror did for her or gave her. It's all me in retrospect saying, I bet this is what it was. I bet it helped her sleep better at night to be able to turn off a TV or leave a movie where there's a big imaginary monster um, that just settles your spirit a little bit about what you've been through. And, and you, although she wasn't able to share, you weren't able to share that 
clearly you shared you were so close. I mean, yes. one of my favorite books of yours is the nonfiction account of you and your mom, where you write these kind of parallel, uh, it's kind of parallel histories. Um, so you, you know, your mom was a, an amazing, she had the biggest, she filled a room five times she, over when she walked in. She had uh, the, her voice dropped when she was pregnant with me. And she was so proud of you. I mean, oh my God, you know, with, your, with your books, I mean, she, she made sure they, I mean, I did it anyway, obviously, but she wanted to make sure they were, they were in that window <laughs> and she would window. ask me. She would ask me how well they're selling and oh, all that stuff. Gosh. She was she was my momager, literally. She I really I, was. This piano was part of what I, I paid her. I think I bought it for five thousand dollars or something like that at the time. That was part of her payment for being my momager. And she went on the road with me. I even I remember her yeah. on the road with me for my book tour with the Black Rose because we were working on Freedom in the Family. A mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights, which we had a reading at Books and Books. C-SPAN recorded it. It's still right. up in the C-SPAN uh, archives. I, I don't look at a lot of video on my mom, but but I'm trying to work toward that because I feel like I need to move past that grief if I, you know, as much as I can, because it feels to me like I'm kind of dishonoring the experience by not remembering, by not like wanting to look at it. You'll get there. You'll get there. All right. So, so you, you were, you, you, when did you discover that you could use horror uh, to express yourself creatively uh, and also um, move away from the white cannon <laughs> that you it were, was, it was that all was like hanging one, around your head like a, it was, yeah, it know. was all one fell swoop, Mitchell. Um, I was writing my white characters, writing my white characters, <laughs> trying to sell a short story, came so close. Uh, with one story with the white male protagonist, I was actually imitating Ian McEwen, which only meant that I was trying to write like the weirdest short story I could because people forget Ian McEwen started as a short story stylist and yes. he wrote some very strange short stories. Very strange. So I was trying to sort of imitate that and that led to my first sale, although sadly not my first publication. And who knows how long I would have stayed along, along that path except for Hurricane Andrew coming along. And there were three things that happened at once. One, I read Gloria, Nail uh, Gloria Naylor's Mama Day, which was important because she was a black woman writer I knew was respected, but she was writing about the metaphysical. And I had never encountered that before as an adult. I was like, oh, so wait, that's, she's allowed to do that. She can just write her, her bliss and black characters and the metaphysical and people are fine with that. <laughs> and then it was uh, ironically working at the Miami Herald um, interviewing Anne Rice. And in my research for the interview, I found, I think it was a New York Times Magazine piece, I'm not 100% sure about that, where the author had sort of started the story with this theory that she was wasting her talents writing about vampires, because you know, there's this genre bias. And I, and I had felt some of that in, in school from classmates too, you know, that it's not, if you bring up Stephen King's name, it's like, what are you talking about? So I was really wrestling with that as the daughter of civil rights activists, would I be respected, right? The whole Gloria Naylor piece, but even more reinforcement. So I asked her my first question, like how do you respond to criticism that you're wasting your talents writing about vampires? And she just lit up on the phone and she was like, oh, listen, my books are taught in colleges. And when you write about the supernatural, you can write about all these big sweeping themes like love and death and loss. And she, I was off to the races. So after Hurricane Andrew, which felt like my whole life had been turned upside down, I was very lucky. Uh, I had bought a townhouse. I didn't have much damage in my neighborhood, but the farther south you drove, you probably remember, mile after mile after mile of everything just flattened. Buildings, trees, power lines. You couldn't even find your way in familiar spaces because the landmarks were so altered. So my, my, my mother's house was severely damaged, my grandmother, my aunt. So that idea uh, that became the between, you know, what if you were supposed to die and you didn't? And every time you woke up, you were in a different version of reality, alternate realities. That, that's, that's what sort of the spine of the story was. But, and I was very nervous. I wrote my sister, Johnny, that letter, do you think there would be a market? for a black horror novel, I had no idea. 
but I knew I wanted to write this story and I wrote a male protagonist. I hadn't quite worked my way to actually writing women protagonists yet, but he was black. Okay. So he was a black male. So I had, I had gone over that hump. Um, and as much as I admired, uh, the black legends I was reading in that play, Alice Walker and Toni Morrison, so much of that work was, was written in rural settings, right? In historical settings that did not feel like my world. I mean, I could appreciate the stories, but I couldn't write that. I couldn't write rural at that. So I was like, okay, they live in the suburbs, just like I do. And so I wrote about, you know, some of the issues with integration, just like we had faced. I wrote about, you know, some of the arguments between my parents, because, you know, my father very much spent a lot of his time outside of the house at meetings, uh, working with community members. That was his, his absolute joy was community building. And my mom had given up a lot of her more external activism outside of PTA, state PTA. I mean, she still had a lot of impact, but she was more focused on her three daughters. And so those arguments back and forth, that tension between being active outside of the home versus being active inside of the home made it a great deal into this book. Uh, they say, right, what you know, 10 years of reporting for the Miami Herald, uh, everything I could think of, you know, the kitchens, not, I don't think I'd been there 10 years then, maybe five years, but everything, the, the different communities, the Haitian American community, the AIDS crisis, that was very big news still in the 1990s. Um, um, Senseria, uh, all of that, you know, uh, Celia Cruz, everything. It's just like a big gumbo with everything that had happened in my life up to that point. And I had no idea that it was the one that would be my first publication, not just my first novel, because I had never published a short story yet. I tried many times. Uh, so this was my first publication that I didn't know it was ready. I tried one contest that I had used for the deadline. And I tried one agency, ICM, one of the biggest agencies, one of the biggest agents and, and both turned it down. So I put it in a drawer and thought, okay, it was a learning exercise. And it was in that drawer for nine months. I was already well into writing My Soul to Keep, the second novel, before I just realized that I was selling myself short. Some part of me knew that I was hiding from my dream. I guess I was policing myself internally, uh, probably some therapy at that time. I was in my 20s. So just by definition, I was unhappy. <laughs> Why is it that we're so unhappy in our 20s? Well, we just are. I don't know what it is. But uh, so I realized, oh, I'm, I'm not actually trying to sell this book. I've let fear stop me from trying to sell this book. Mrs. Estiver, who you remember, also from Southridge High School, we forgot to mentioned the school, Miami Southridge, had given me the advice that in order to be a writer, you have to wallpaper your wall with rejection slips. And I had put my little rejection slips on my the back of my door, but I hadn't wallpapered anything with them, <laughs> right? So like that, be, that just implies a lot of work. That implies you send it out again and again and again. Uh -huh. And I didn't even have to do that, Mitchell. I had met a woman, Janelle Walden Ogeman in Miami. She worked for Marie Brown Associates, which was based in New York, but she was working out of her home. She didn't even have a fax machine at the time. And that was when a lot of people had fax machines. So she was like really sort of putting her business together. I was one of her earlier clients. She sold the between in like two weeks. And she sold it for more than my annual salary at the Miami Herald, which wasn't huge, but it was I mean, you know, back in those days, I don't mind saying what it was. They made an offer of 30,000. And I was like, <gasps> and she said, but I've asked for 50. And I was like, what? Which is why you have to always have an agent. You also broke grounds. It was my own um, ignorance. You know, I hadn't read Octavia Butler up to that point. Right. You know, I hadn't, there were people who were out there pioneering that I just had not been familiar with. I'm, I'm even thinking, because I looked at Beloved, that came out in 87. So I'm not sure when I finally read Beloved. I don't think I'd read it before I started The Between. Uh, I really did not know that there were, <laughs> you know, aside from Mama Day, I felt like I was just sort of walking out on a gangplank, you know, alone. And I wasn't sure what would happen if I jumped off. But um, well, it, let's talk a little bit about what you've learned since and what you're now teaching. So, you know, you never let go of horror. Horror has always been something that's been the way you express yourself, the, you know, the, the, the entree to your expression. So talk a little bit about, you know, real horror 
and black horror and and how they relate to one another well it's all horror so that's the first thing uh black horror is a subgenre of just horror and really people say well what is horror it really can be different things to different people it's a, an emotion of dread so sometimes you can have something that some people might consider a drama and I would consider horror. Eve's Bayou is a good example of that. Eve's mm-hmm. Bayou is, it doesn't have a, a, a strong supernatural element. The, the filmmaker hints that this is a world where psychics may know the future and hints that curses may be real, but she also leaves plenty of room for interpretation that this is just a coincidence, that this is not what happened, but it's, it's about incest, basically, the hint of incest in a family, that's horror, you know, um, I had a student have a very strong reaction to a clip I played in class just recently reminding me this is really, really tough stuff, so horror is just this emotion, it's dread, and when you add black horror to the equation, that really, and, you know, it has, that even has sort of a broad definition, it can mean literally it's by a black creator, or sometimes even it can be by a white creator, like in cinema, for example. Um, Lovecraft Country, actually, uh, the, the novel isn't written by uh, a, a black writer, but it's considered black horror and, you know, spawned the television series, which was definitely black horror. But it's, it's having black characters with agency. They're not tropes. They're driving the story. They're the protagonists. They're making the decisions. Um, and sometimes, not always, it's about racism as the monster. You know, the between, because of my background, does have some strong undercurrents or not even undercurrents of racism as the monster. But one of the great things about horror noir, this new anthology, is that, you know, there are only a couple of the pieces that touch on racism as a monster. The the other pieces are more just about, you know, the monstrosity within or all of those human journeys that we go through that are universal they just happen to be through a black lens. So your husband, Steve, right? So Steve probably identifies as a science fiction writer, probably yeah. mostly. Yes. So tell me the difference. Tell me the difference of black horror, black science fiction. Is there a mingling of the two? Steve definitely is a science fiction writer, and the difference between science fiction and and horror is that while science fiction can be horror, like Alien is a good example, it's very, very scary. There's a lot of dread, but it's also set in a future where you have space cargo ships, right? Like the equivalent of space truck drivers on a mission. Um, Science fiction is sometimes futurism, sometimes alternate history, uh, fantasy is imaginary creatures, right? <laughs> you know, like uh, Tolkien right. and, and that kind of thing. And and horror can be either of those, but with dread uh, and and survival sort of at the core of the story. Uh, the protagonist is almost always in immediate uh, danger in horror. And science fiction, you know, some people might argue that something like Parable of the Sower by, by Octavia E. Butler feels like horror because it depicts a future that is so horrific. But, you know, technically that's mostly science fiction because it's, it's, it's social science fiction. It's set in the future. Well, more and more, it's not the future. It's set in the, the 2020s and we're getting there. Um, but it's more preoccupied with sort of examining what does it mean to create a community? What does it mean to create a religion? And what is the impact of creating a religion with the goal of creating a community to stand up to all these outside forces? Uh, Engaging with with questions. And it might be a bit of an oversimplification to say that more often in science fiction, you can feel the authors kind of trying to untangle questions. You know, like what if this were true? Uh, What will happen if we keep in this path, you know, that which was definitely what Octavia was trying to warn us that we were headed to uh, a very unhappy place. Uh, I remember when you put together an Octavia Butler um, program at the Miami Book Fair, if you remember. Oh, yes, and she came. And would you call her work sort of Afrofuturism in a sense? Yeah. Is it more of that? It is. I mean, um, some people consider fledgling horror because it's about a vampire, literally. Mm -hmm. In many ways, fledgling isn't that different from her other work. It just happens to have a vampire instead of a telepath or instead of um, a young girl in the near future. 
But Afrofuturism, which I also teach at UCLA, I teach it, there are many different definitions, <laughs> but I teach it as um, Black speculative arts, which mm -hmm. means the literature of the imaginary, uh, fantasy, science fiction, horror, these are all not real. Like it's, we're not living in the future. There's no such thing as a zombie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's fantasy, that's not real. Um, but also in cinema and especially in music, the definition can be a little more pliant because you look at artists like Janelle Monet, who will uh, collide many different genres of music to create a new sound. Miles Davis creating uh, jazz fusion in, in that era. Mm -hmm. uh, Sun Ra using technology to create jazz. So Afrofuturism also encompasses music, comics, it's, it's, a, it's a little broader than literature, but in terms of the literature, it's the, the black speculative arts. And there are some people who just call it the black speculative arts movement and don't like the term Afrofuturism because it was um, Mark Derry, a cultural critic kind of came up with the term to explain something he was observing happening culturally. Uh, but also there are artists who wanna name the movement themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So they call it the black speculative arts movement which is a lot longer than Afrofuturism, but it is that, that speculation, the imaginary. And it was in 1997 when Afrofuturism was really starting to coalesce that Clark Atlanta University had a, an Afrofuturism program called the African-American Fantastic Imagination, mm. uh, Explorations of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror. And they invited me on the basis of the between. And I met in one fell swoop, I met Samuel R. Delaney, who was Octavia Butler's mentor and also a pioneer in his own right, you know, a black man publishing science fiction in the 1960s and winning prizes. Unbelievable. Um, the Einstein intersection, I remember. And right? very, very uh, complex prose style, big ideas in his, in, in his stories. He was there, Octavia Butler, of course, so many people know her was there. Uh, Jewel Gomez, uh, queer vampire uh, with the Gilder stories uh, with her novel. And this guy named Stephen Barnes, uh, who had written several novels and also a lot of television, including The Outer Limits. And I'd seen one of his episodes on TV and was very excited to meet him. So what do you know? We ended up getting uh, falling in love over that short period of the conference and having a courtship by mail. And now you work together in work together, film and television. Married right? together, married 23 years. And you have a son. And we have a 17-year-old son. We're homeschooling in his senior year of high school. So and I also know that you know you have exciting news about what will be happening next fall. You have a new novel that's I about to come do. out. It's many years in the making. Uh, it's called The Reformatory. And it hasn't been announced in terms of the publication. So I guess I'm not supposed to talk about that yet. But we have, I have sold it. And it will come out in the fall. I'm very excited about my editor, very excited about the publisher. Saw a cover concept that I'm in love with. And it's basically the story of, a, of it's novel. It's a novel, but it's based uh, loosely, I'd say, on true history. Because soon after my mother uh, passed away, I got a call from someone in the Florida State Attorney General's office explaining that I had a forebear or uh, at least a great uncle who had been buried at the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida in the 1930s. And I didn't know anything about Dozier. I'd never heard of it. I had never heard of this relative. My mother never mentioned having an uncle who went away to a reformatory and never came back. I doubt she knew. I doubt the family ever told her. And they were calling me as a family member to try to get permission to exhume some of the remains, which they have subsequently done. But the more I read about Dozier and how horrific it was, uh, it was open roughly between about, I think, 1900 and about 2011. I don't know if those are the exact years, but it was fraught with issues from one uh, report after report, children chained, uh, I mean, runaways who, who would end up dead. It had its own cemetery. It was such a horrible place. Like a lot of these, these industrial schools that we're hearing about now in Canada with the indigenous population. It's just the mindset that people can have to do harm to children is beyond me. It is beyond me. But we know that people will abuse power, right? We know that that's what's one of the most insidious parts of our, our mass incarceration nation is the, the abuse of power and dehumanization of people when they're helpless. Um, 
So I, I, I read a lot of nonfiction memoirs about Dozier. Uh, and I didn't feel like that was the right space for me. I'm not a survivor. And I, I, I really just wanted to set Robert free. That was the whole, hmm. <laughs> I, that was the whole thing. I was like, I want to write it now. I want to like change this up. And I decided to write it, of course, being a horror writer as a ghost story. But where you fairly quickly learn that the ghosts are not nearly as dangerous as the humans. And, and that's the base. And it took me seven years. I mean, such a tough research process. Uh, I made several trips to Mariana, many with my dad, uh, talked to locals, talked to survivors, blogged about it extensively over those years while I was working on well, it. As, some, as someone who's read it, I, I can tell all the readers out there that you should mark your calendar for for next next fall for when this, this book comes out. It's called The Reformatory. And Keep an eye out for it. It's really, really remarkable. And can we talk about our like unlikely intersection uh, with the reformatory? Yeah, no, that's right. We it's not a secret. You know, you know, uh, Tanana Reeve and I, we keep sort of coming together, coming together again. So you can say what it is if you'd like. Yeah, Mitchell reached out. What you're working on? <laughs> we and I sent him a bunch of stuff. Uh, and the reformatory was like a barely finished manuscript. In fact, I'm not even sure I had finished it when you first reached out. But the pandemic really forced me to finish it because I was I'm a hypochondriac and I was literally afraid I would die before I finished writing it. And it turns out that's very motivating. So uh, you read it, and 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 you're with uh, you know Missouri Kaplan, obviously. And- yeah, my my film partner Paula Mazur, and then. Uh, and, and we also Mazer Kaplan, and we we uh, were developing it with Sidney Kimmel and uh, Marcy Ross, and we're hoping for it to be a um, a series that will be coming to a streamer, you know, soon. It's just so, <laughs> so. surreal, Mitchell. You know, I wish uh, the fifty-year-old me would have been like a much calmer in life if I had known like decades later we would still be in touch even never mind uh, working together and and it just reminds me of that time atria books my my primary publisher invited me to a party at prince's house because prince was publishing a book and you were the first person i saw when i walked through the door it was just like what it was so surreal that was a great night, wasn't it? Was I a mean, dream. <laughs> it was like a, a private Prince concert. We it had. was. I, I could. I was standing close enough to him to see his fingers on the guitar. Right, and he was, and he was. They were smoking that night. They it were really, crazy. really good. But it just to me, that's how surreal it feels that that we're working together to package uh, the reformatory for film and TV. Because I wasn't even that aware that you were. I knew you said you were going to go into producing, but I didn't realize. Oh, you've actually made stuff, and you're actually doing this for real. And you know, well, you know, working with you is a dream, and 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 you've been such a part of my life all these years, and uh, you know, it it just kind of it's why we do what we do. And uh, well, it's, you know, great. it's about keeping those who you care about close to you. So I told you when you when, when I left teaching, it wasn't goodbye. It was I'll see you later. And you said that. Yeah, we've been, we've been seeing each other later for a very long time. That is so true. And I was already so proud of you because you were literally leaving after class to go put up bookshelves in the original <laughs> books and books. True. So, that is true. So why don't you read what well, let's let's. Let's get everyone to know your brilliance. So why don't you read a little bit of the between, if you would. I'm going to read very little bit of the between. It's from the prologue. um, And basically, it starts with a a near-death experience. So just by way of background, um, seven-year-old Hilton James, my protagonist, is at the beach enjoying himself when he gets caught up in an undertow. And the only person who sees him in danger is his grandmother. So this is just a, a short excerpt from the between. Oh, I better put on my reading glasses. I forgot I was wearing my contacts. (laughs) I forget until I hold up something to try to read. Okay, here we go. Um, He didn't hear Nana shout out from where she stood at the shore, but he'd hear the story told many times later. There was no lifeguard that day, but there were plenty of Kelly and James men who followed Nana, who stripped herself of her dress and ran into the water. The woman hadn't been swimming in years, but her limbs didn't fail her this one time she needed to glide across the water. 
The men followed the old woman into the sea. Hilton felt he couldn't hold his breath anymore, and the water mocked him all around. It filled his ears, his nose, and finally his mouth, and his muscles began to fail him. It was then, just as he believed his entire 50-pound body would fill with water, that he felt an arm around his waist. He fought the arm at first, thinking it was another current, but the grip was firm and pulled him up, 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 until he could see light and Nana's weary, determined face. That was all he saw because he went limp then. He would hear the rest from the others who told him in gentle, gentle ways about chariots to the everlasting and that sort of thing. One of the James men had been swimming closely behind Nana and she passed Hilton to his arms. Then she simply stopped swimming, they said, said maybe she just gave out. Nana's head began to sink below the water. And just as one of the Kelly men reached to try to take her arm, the current she pulled Hilton from took her instead. The men carrying Hilton could only swim against it with all their might toward the shore. Many people almost died that day. When Hilton's senses came back to him and he was lying on the beach caked in gritty sand, all that was left of Nana was her good flowered dress, damp and crumpled at the water's edge. So what the gifted old folks, the seers, often say is true. Sometimes the dead go unburied. Ooh. And that's from the prologue of the between. Beautiful. Tanana Reeve, thanks so much for oh, being on so the Literary fun. Life. So good this was a to. lot of fun. And, and uh, give Steve, give Steve my love. And I hope, uh, I hope the premiere goes beautifully tomorrow. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. <laughs>